From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. I was going to touch to see if it was springing back. but So I went in blind, you know, not seeing anything, and my finger just kept going and going and going. I thought, where's the cake? You know, it had fallen in the center because I'd used too much baking powder. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. And you're tuning in during our first ever Baking Week. This week, we're bringing you four all-new episodes from authors behind some of our favorite classic baking books and behind some new ones, too. Yesterday, we talked with Kristen McGlory of Food 52, and today we're back in the studio with an icon of baking books, Rose Levy Berenbaum. After more than a dozen books, Rose knows a thing or two about making a great baking book, but it all started back in 1988 when Rose published her first book, The Cake Bible, and a Bible it is, earning its place on any serious home baker's shelves, and it's now in its 55th printing. But let's look back to before it was even published. I found a copy of the New York Times from October 1988, which had an article about Rose's first book. They wrote, Rarely does a book on baking attract widespread attention in the food world. Rose Levy Berenbaum's Cake Bible is different. Even before its official publication date, bakers and non-bakers alike were telling each other that it was one of the very few books that would serve as a textbook and inspiration for a generation of dessert makers. The New York Times was right, and Rose went on to produce other iconic works, like The Bread Bible, The Baking Bible, and Rose's Heavenly Cakes. And now she's back with her latest, Rose's Baking Basics. Now, this book is true to Rose's meticulous attention to detail, and it's bolstered by step-by-step photos for every recipe, excellent for, in Rose's words, the occasional baker or the ardent enthusiast. And of course, it's full of her expert tips and science tricks to help you master these recipes. So for our first ever Baking Week, we sat down with Rose and her collaborator, Woody Woolston, to talk about Rose's Baking Basics and her other iconic books. Let's head now to our studio at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, where Rose and Woody joined us to talk cookbooks. Rose, we're here to talk about your, this is your 11th book. Yes. Or 12th. Well, the 12th, actually 12th if you include a booklet that was devoted all to pies. I think a baker's dozen of pies. Okay. So some people consider it 13 and some 12, um, 11 and some 12. Okay, so... Let's and there's 12, a 13th one 13. that was just sent in to the publisher. Okay, mm-hmm. soon to be 13. And so it's it's titled Rose's Baking Basics. But before we talk about this book, I actually want to talk a little bit about how you got into baking um, and some other cookbooks, and then, then we'll get back to Rose's Baking Basics. And we were talking earlier with um, Jen, who owns the Civic Kitchen, this beautiful school where we're recording this conversation, um, and who used to own a wedding cake business. And oh. she said her business would I not have know. existed without the cake Bible that she, her first copy was so worn and used that she eventually had to take it out of its binding and put it into a uh, three um, ring binder. Three ring binder. Well, that's why it's now yeah. on its 55th printing. Yeah. <laughs> not 55th because, now. I thought it yeah. was 50, 55th. No, it's gone wow. up to 55 already yeah. and it's exactly 30 years this month. Okay. Since it was published. Well, congratulations. And they that's still exciting. want to stitch the binding. <laughs> yeah. well, not having a stitch binding. They, they have to keep on rebind the books. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 55 printings. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember your first cookbook that you ever had? Oh, sure. Which, which cookbook was it? It was 
James Beard. Okay. It was a soft cover book uh-huh. and it had a whole plate of charcuterie on the cover. But at first glance, I thought, this guy's really fat. It must be really delicious. <laughs> then I thought, but why did they show all his intestines underneath the table? But that was the platter of all the stuff that he was making. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I ended up studying with James Beard in New York and he really was a wonderful cook and teacher. Yeah. After that, Joy of Cooking. Okay. Those were your first two. Mm-hmm. Woody, do you remember your first cookbook? Betty Crocker. Uh-huh. Classic, yeah. The classic. Yeah. And then Joy of Cooking. Um, what do you think? We were just talking about the Cake Bible, which is now in its 55th printing. When we look at cookbooks, that's pretty rare. That's a pretty significant accomplishment to have a book in its 55th printing and 30 years still feel so resonant. What do you think it was that resonated so strongly with people about the Cake Bible? Well, if they baked from it, it worked. All the information yeah. was there. That probably was the main thing. But also, I changed the way in which cakes were mixed. And people realized that if they didn't have the book, they wouldn't be able to embrace this whole new way that was faster, easier, and better. And people have reported seeing this book um, in Kathmandu and the depths of a submarine. Wow. And I know for sure we have information on high-altitude baking, though I've never actually done it there. Uh I mean, theoretically, the USDA has advice. But I've never done it in a submarine. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, And when I was in Louisiana, I found that gelatin does not set well at below um, what would you say the b- below sea level? Uh huh. Yeah, but because Louisiana actually is. Yeah. Interesting. So, Gelatin doesn't set. Yeah, and the chocolate also didn't curl very well, but that could okay. be because of the humidity. Okay. But things change. That's the thing about baking. You know, I did everything at sea level or on the seventh floor above sea level. Right. <laughs> So you've been writing cookbooks now for several decades and and baking Mm -hmm. books for several decades. Are there things that you have seen change in the baking industry? You noted you introduced a new way of mixing cakes. Are there other things that you've seen change over your tenure as a cookbook author? Well, one thing I'm really proud of is that I can attribute to myself because I've been fighting this battle now for 30 years. Uh I wrote an article for the LA Times Syndicate. Way to bake, W-E-I-G-H. <laughs> yes, I love that. Yeah. Great pun. And I have to tell you that I haven't seen a cookbook this year, well, one, mm, I won't mention, that does not have weights. For That's a baking book that doesn't have weights. Yeah. I started off giving volume, ounces, and grams. Mm-hmm. They made me put volume first. And then they let me eliminate ounces, and now we have grams before volume. So, of course, grams are more accurate, and now that scales are available, people can use that. Right. I mean, one gram is, seven grams is equal to a quarter of an ounce. So you can see when you have to round off things to a quarter of an ounce, you're going to be seven grams off. Yeah. But that's, people have come to trust me because they know that when I do a book, I test it thoroughly, but then I also proofread it. Because it's one thing if you hand in a a manuscript with no mistake, but then you have to proof it many times through each version that they do to make sure that mistakes don't get built into the book. Right. It's a very thorough process making a a cookbook of any kind, but I would imagine a baking book is even more particular because there's the science and the the very specific measurements. Also, you can't look at a recipe, even I have my experience of so many years, can't necessarily look at a recipe and know if something's not going to work. Right. So I always give the example of in a food book, if somebody says seven lamb chops and they write 71, you know, you're not feeding all those people. (laughs) But if they say, say, um, 700 grams of flour instead of 70, it's maybe the right, I mean, who knows? So you have to really be very accurate and 
make sure that people are able to bake from it successfully. Now, what is your recipe testing process like then? Can you sort of walk us through a day in the life of, I know you call yourself Team Rosewood. Uh, What's like a day in the life of Team Rosewood as you're working on a, a recipe for a book? Well, it's an interesting question because I think a lot of people see me in the kitchen or us in the kitchen all the time, whereas in actuality, we spend a large percentage of time at the computer. Uh And I'm an inspirational baker. When I have an idea, I can't wait to do it. So Woody keeps me from just plunging in without typing (laughs) it up first because my notes are all over the place. And so I have samples of nuts on the notes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that actually I've tried three tests and I do a different color ink for each one, but then I can't figure out afterwards what was what. So I'm really trying to discipline myself to be more um, exacting in the approach in the beginning. So once we have the recipe and we have all the ingredients and we make it, and we often have to wait a day to see because things change overnight. But, we, but as we're doing it too, though, we're usually... Let's see, checking for heat, I mean, uh, temperature and, readings. And yes, and uh, the, the weight the, of each ingredient. weight of each in, uh, ingredient or each, each pie or cake or whatever. We also, uh, we're putting, doing a cake batter in the pan. We'll, uh, we'll measure it, you know, like it was mm-hmm. an inch down before we baked it, inch and a half after we baked it, you know, doming or whatever. Yeah, and we take photos of the results too, so we can then, see um, what happened. Then we dissect it. And give it to people to taste as well. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And That's if something important. isn't working out right away, you know, we, do right over again, usually. It's always easier to go back to it right away than have to revisit it a few days later. Okay. It's faster, and you know what you've just done, and better to compare the new version. Uh, so you'll do it again and again. We'll do it again. If necessary. Sure. Once in a while, yeah. you nail it on the first yeah. try. But in right. doing it again and again, too, let's say if something didn't come out right, uh, we generally only change one thing. Because uh, otherwise you can't judge. So it's awfully tempting to change more than one, but I try not to. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, the, you learn this in high school science. Right. Like, if you change method. two variables, you don't know which one was responsible for what you ended up with. Exactly. Yeah. Now, one of the common critiques of some of your works, or maybe, in fact, one of the only critiques <laughs> of um, your wonderful cookbooks, is some people feel maybe you're a little too precise, a little too meticulous, a little too detail-oriented. How did you sort of balance that? <laughs> <laughs> some, sometimes, maybe, yeah, a little too much instruction. They How feel did you that way until they make somebody that? else's recipe, and then they yeah. write on our blog and say, well, you know, why doesn't this work? And we always say, did you ask the author? <laughs> I mean, it, the perception is that there's maybe too much information until people realize it's valuable. But the wonderful thing with the new book, The Baking Basics, Mm -hmm. is that um, some of the very same recipes, most of them are new, but some of the older ones that are basically the same recipe but presented in a different format, reviewers have said, not realizing it's the same recipe, her recipes are so much more approachable now. (laughs) All the information that's needed is there, but the difference is that we have the step-by-steps, which means the text can be less text-heavy. Right. But, and but, plus we but, number them. But also the photos. That's the key. Well, yeah. We, the photos enable yeah. us to do that. And so the mise en place, which is the advanced prep, you can see right away what you need to do when you start baking. So it's, it makes it much more enjoyable. I'd like to redo all my books to be that way. Yeah. But I'd have to live to 300 years old because <laughs> they're all such long books. So, so in, yeah. in, in, instead of what I'm trying to say is in, uh, reason why she's been so descriptive of her stuff in other books in the past is that where she was painting a, a picture that you could not see or a photograph you too. could not see yeah. that this is a texture you cheap also we generally try to give you know, at least two stipulations why something is at the correct temperature or baked the right way we might say landmarks uh, 
you know, sure. you know, use your uh, instant thermometer to check for the temperature, or if you if it's a breath, it sounds with that hollow uh-huh. sound. Yeah, you've you've achieved it. But we'll, you know, usually we'll give you two benchmarks so that you know that okay, that did work. Right. I think you Things need to be reassuring, yeah. even with experienced bakers. People have to trust, especially if they're making a wedding cake. There aren't wedding cakes in this book, but in two of my other books, The Cake Bible and Heavenly Cakes, there are wedding cakes. Yeah. And imagine making all that effort and having it not work. Yeah, and I think you're you're providing a lot of information, but as you just noted, you're not providing information that isn't useful or necessary. As you said, once people work through a recipe, they sort of understand that the information is there for a well, reason. The, criti- the critics should have seen The Cake Bible before the final version <laughs> where I, all the information was right there in the manuscript. And the editor that I sent it to first from another house wrote back, you throw the reader into a quandary of contingencies. Oh. You, you tell them more than they need to know. And I, I cried. And then I thought, well, either I agree with her, in which case there's no point in, in crying, I'll change it, or I don't agree, or a combination of both. Mm. And I realized that she had a very valuable point. You need that information, but not every time you read it, just the first time. I see. But right. nothing is in the way if you're just streaming through the recipe. Now, are there favorite recipes of yours yes. in Ra- Rose's Baking Basics? <laughs> I always wanted to put a list in the book, and editors have always said, well, then people won't think that the rest of them are favorites. <laughs> right. I wouldn't put in a book something that's filler. In fact, I'm always being criticized for having too many re- recipes in the book, and they have to pare them down or try to. To, and then I negotiate, please, this we don't want to give give up this one or that one. Right. But my top favorite is actually the triple lemon bunt. Okay. It has three yeah. different experiences of lemon. I adore that. I'm not a chocoholic, but I love the chocolate caramel tarts, mm. either milk chocolate or regular, mm. and the butterscotch toffee. Now, there are two things that have chocolate in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, although there is, there are two flourless chocolate cakes. Okay, and yeah. one has almonds and the other is just pure chocolate with whipped cream in the crater that forms. And that's one of my, my mouth's watering after eating a huge lunch because yeah. that's one of the most delicious ways to experience chocolate. But of course you have to use the best quality chocolate to have right. something like that. Right. Yeah. I'm not a big chocolate person either, but those sound delicious. Woody, do you have favorite recipes too from this book? Of course. Uh, the butterscotch toffee. Yeah. Which is pretty easy to make, and but it's a crowd pleaser. Also, uh, pizza Rosa, which is Rosa's pizza recipe that she's been working on for yeah about ten years. A long time, but it's the, the Italian me. Yeah. It's <laughs> the Italian, yeah. But the, the key to it is a, a, a very thin crust. But unlike where most pizzas, you know, you cut that triangle and try to put up your mouth, and the tip just goes. Right. You have to takes, turn it, it into a, a calzone. <laughs> right. uh, this one you don't have to fold up. You know, or you use a fork and knife, like <laughs> who went president knife. did that. Right. <laughs> no, yes, but it's a thin yeah. crust, but not so thin it's like a matzo. Yeah. I mean, I want some dough. And what I like best about that pizza, which I worked the hardest to get, was to have a really bubbly rim. And, of course, one of the main secrets is making it a day ahead, which also accentuates all the flavors, but it also gives you that bubble. Going back to what you said, what's changed yeah. over the years mm-hmm. is the accessibility of ingredients. Yes. Where, you know, now uh, where we say pastry flour, where in the past you could never really, you know, the home person could never buy it. Well, you right. can buy it online. Yeah, but that's the trouble. You can't get it in supermarkets. And that's one of the biggest breakthroughs in this book. Yeah. We've yeah. had a lot of revelations here. Yeah. But the one that's most important, I think, is that you can now use all-purpose, bleached or unbleached, if you use one tablespoon of sugar per crust. So if you have a double crust pie, two tablespoons, it's identical to pastry flour. But really? it has the advantage of browning faster and more. 
It has a lovelier color because of the sugar. Yeah. Now, are you using super fine sugar or just granulated? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Okay. Mm. It tenderizes. Yeah. I think that's what people really love about your books, too, is the science and that you really find um, these new revelations around the science of baking. I know one thing you've written about and talked about is that eggs are becoming smaller. Oh, yes. That's a really big deal. Yeah. The, the yolk to white ratio, mm-hmm. which really throws things off. I'm so glad that people have accepted the word science as not being the opposite of art. (laughs) In fact, Harold McGee, who wrote on food and cooking from this area, he's the one who really broke down the barrier. And science just means that you have an understanding of what is in an ingredient and how it behaves, and then you can alter things. People who just write and say, well, can I substitute? They want to substitute not just one thing generally, but two. And that's a disaster. We always say, do one at a time and first make it the way it was intended. So you see, because if you don't have the book that tells you how much liquid is in an ingredient or how much fiber, you can't know right off the bat. And this is how we approach a recipe that's new. I look in the USD book and see what the contents of that ingredient is. For example, white chocolate, I didn't have to look anywhere because I knew that real white chocolate that has cocoa butter is approximately one third cocoa butter, one third milk solids, and one third sugar. And that's this was in an era, I think in the 70s, where people were adding white chocolate, not thinking about what they were adding and saying, oh God, it's so sweet. Right. Of course, you have to take out that amount of sugar. Right. So when you bake by weights, it's very easy to take that out. You have three ounces of chocolate, white chocolate. You take out an ounce or 28 grams of sugar from the recipe. Okay. Yeah. yeah. A big point you're saying about eggs, for example. That's one yeah. reason where some, you know, some cookbooks will say uh, six eggs. Or six yolks. Or six yolks and nothing else. We make a point that we're going to give you the gram weight and also the volume weight because, uh, you know, cheesecake, for example, when other people say five egg yolks, they could easily go up to nine because those little young chickens laying those little yolks. Um, and that's why it's very, very important to measure them out versus just going, well, oh, that's it. Walter's got to be correct. And one of the tips yeah. that I'm most proud of is beating egg whites, where if you beat them till stiff, they're always saying stiff but not dry. What happens is that they get overwhipped. Then when you fold them into a mixture, it loses all the air and becomes curdled. But if you use the right amount of cream of tartar per mm-hmm. egg white, it never overbeats, no matter how long you beat. And people have tried for a couple of hours. Oh, really? you know, so this is a great discovery. Too much isn't good either. But right. how can you determine how much cream of tartar to use if your egg white ratio is going to be off? Right. If you have one and a half or two times the amount of egg white per egg. So that's how you have to adapt to changing times yeah. and give that information. Are there other sciencey revelations that you had while working on Rose's Baking Basics? Yes. Well, indirectly, uh, okay. we were doing a, during the time of basics, we did a, a genoise, which is whole eggs that are, are whipped up. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also takes, it takes effect that also uses cornstarch and it didn't come out. It was and coarse. It was coarse. And I was mm-hmm. like, What's it changed worked in the since cake, the cake Bible, Bible all the time. And so we broke it down and we attacked the eggs first because that was something we understood. Hey, yolks could be light here. So and, you know, since the eggs aren't separated, you're getting less yolk. Yeah, so and we, yolk so is we, an emulsifier. So we, did, we measured them out and did it. And it still didn't work. Like, what's, so we checked into it and then Rose checked with her friend uh, Lisa, Yokelson. Lisa Yokelson. And it came down to the cornstarch. Uh, we were using GMO a, cornstarch. A, a standard yeah. Cornstarch, which now is GMO'd, we won't mention names. And uh, that she said, you know, let's try, try the using Rumford uh, organic and perfection. Bingo! Back to wow. the way it had been. Things, things came back to normal. Uh, so you have to be a sleuth. You have to walk around the kitchen yeah. with a magnifying glass. Yeah. yeah. So, so 
unfortunately, we have to say too, with the availability of ingredients, also ingredients have changed. So some things just don't work like they used to, and you have to sleuth that out. Yeah, when something doesn't work, I just go crazy. You know, I think I'm, yeah. what's changed. In fact, that's what we always say when somebody writes in that something that always worked isn't. We say, what have you done that's different? This works even with medical conditions. You know, it's right. always something that you've done that you just weren't thinking of. Right. It's probably the scientific approach. Yeah. So isn't science sounding more and more friendly by the minute? <laughs> we'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Rose Levy Berenbaum and her collaborator, Woody Woolston, discussing Rose's Baking Basics. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, listen up. This Saturday, December 15th, to celebrate our first ever baking week, we're hosting a cookie swap and demo event. Join us for an afternoon at the Civic Kitchen, the beautiful cooking school for home cooks and the home to Salt and Spine in the Mission District. There will be champagne and warm apple cider and so many cookies to eat, swap, and learn how to make. Of course, in addition to eating and swapping, there will be lots of demos on how to bake delicious cookies, including by cookbook author Jessica Batalana, Civic Kitchen teachers, and even yours truly. And of course, you won't want to miss the cookie swap. To get in on the swap action, just bring a dozen or more home-baked cookies and then swap them for other baked goods from fellow home bakers. No time to bake? No worries. You can also purchase cookies to take home, $10 per dozen. Now, tickets to the event are $10 and proceeds will benefit La Cocina, which supports low-income food entrepreneurs in the Bay Area. I hope you'll join us this Saturday for the Salt and Spine Cookie Swap in San Francisco. Get your tickets today at Civic Kitchen SF. And now back to our conversation with Rose Levy Berenbaum and Woody Woolston. Now, you mentioned pie crust. So you have a cream cheese pie crust recipe that was published a while back in the Washington Post. And I read is still one of their most searched recipes. I don't know how recently oh, this you was. Really but really up to speed here. <laughs> most people don't know that. <laughs> yeah. That, yes. that was, I was really pleased to see that people really embraced it because yeah. one of my pipe dreams was to be a pie crust missionary and go around the country showing people the thing that intimidates people most about baking isn't even bread, it's pie crust. Yeah. It is. And so what is it about the cream cheese pie crust? What's the science there? Or what's the process that makes that such a great recipe? Well, the cream cheese pie crust in one, two, three method of old, of your, <laughs> was just using cream cheese butter and flour. So it was really tender. Right. And I thought I'd love to have a flaky cream cheese. People always say you can't make a cream cheese crust flaky. So I introduced water to it. And then it was a little bit too, not tender enough. So I introduced the baking powder which must be calcium-based, like Rumford, because if it's the standard aluminum, you really taste that. You don't taste it in a cake because there's so much sugar in cake, mm-hmm. whereas there's usually no sugar in the pie crust until I started doing the one tablespoon. But the point is, I, f- I still didn't think it was perfect, and I started replacing the water with heavy cream, and that was the eureka moment because not only was it the perfect consistency of tenderness, but it tasted better. It had that floral quality. Yeah. Now, we're a show on cookbooks. We talked about your first cookbooks at the beginning, but I wonder if there are other cookbooks that have inspired you in your many years of making cookbooks, ones that either you turned to or ones that you pulled great um, lessons from in terms of how they're put together. Well, they're cookbooks and they're baking books. Sure. And you know, well, since we're talking about baking, I'll yes. talk about that. But I st- of course, I have to talk about Julia Child, who inspired me the most. And that was not just for her baking, but for the way she wrote recipes with the precision that yeah. she did and the joy. Made a heater. I didn't love her recipes as much as I loved her writing. She made things sound like you couldn't 
stand us another second before you tried them. In fact, I think maybe she overwrote because people were expecting something that nothing could be. It was that good. But I loved the way she wrote, and I was hoping that someday I could write with that desirability, you know, right. that enthusiasm. And now my big hero is uh, Jenk, who wrote yes. The Artful Baker. Artful because, Baker, yeah. yeah, because he's in Turkey, and he also has a low tolerance for overly sweetened things. And he just did the most beautiful baking book I have ever seen, and very original, too. Right. Now, Woody, is there anybody I'm leaving out that... Uh, Bakewise. Shirley, Shirley Courier, Bakewise, and Lisa Yokelson, Baking yeah. Flavor and Chocolate Chocolate. Another mm. author would be uh, Alice Madrich with, oh, uh, yes. with Flavor Flowers, flowers yes. because we get a lot of questions on our website asking about, you know, what do you, what do you have for alternative flowers? Oh. And usually because of something like the dietary restriction, which is causing that. And her book doesn't take it on that approach. It's taking it, hey, this is a flower that works well for this type of thing if you want an alternative flower. So, I mean, you get... I think she has like eight different flowers that she uses. I love the Tef brownies. They were better than using any yeah. other flower. But okay. I have to say that I fell in love with Alice's baking before she'd even written a book. My cousin, who lives in Berkeley, took me to Cocolat. And it the, not only did they look exquisite and elegant and not overly done, but they tasted fantastic. Now, you've done many things in your life. You, you've written for food magazines. You've written for newspapers. You've had a PBS baking show. But you have, you know, this great collection of cookbooks. And it seems you come back to cookbooks. What is it about cookbooks and your cookbook process that draws you to that sort of medium and that vehicle? I guess I'm a unifocused kind of person. I don't like to be spread thin. And I always okay. thought I should just start eliminating these activities and focus on one thing. But the one thing became huge and filled up <laughs> all of my time. Sure. You know, so I'm a storyteller, as you may have guessed. Yeah. You know, and I like writing the head notes more than the instructions. I think writing good instructions is the hardest thing and really labor intensive and time intensive to give no more than you need, like to make, to, be a poet in line drawing. You know, just give what you absolutely need without extra words so people feel confident. And I'm glad I can do it, but it's not fun. What I like is the description of things and naming things. So I know this book is accessible to people of all skill levels, Thank um, you. people interested <laughs> in baking, um, but it's also a great introductory cookbook. And I'm wondering if you could leave our listeners who might be newer to baking with maybe one or two, a couple tips or tricks that you would offer to somebody who's interested in taking up baking. Get sure. a scale. It will change your life. They're yeah. affordable. Have them accurate to one gram. You'll see. Just try weighing it once. A lot of places allow you to return things if I'm wrong, but I, I know I'm not. Yeah. It will make you a baker. What do you think, Woody? Is there another that. important thing for beginning bakers? Read the recipe. Oh, yeah. From start to end. Read the recipe yeah. all the way through. Right. Just make sure you read it all the way through. And then, uh, as we said, we do the mise en place. You know, pull those things out first and have everything ready. Then dive into it. And use yeah. the right size pan. Because yeah. Yeah. one that's too large, one thing bad will happen. One that's too small, the other, which is overflowing and falling. Well, we um, are going to end with a little rapid fire round. So I've got three, or four or five questions that I think are short little answers. So I'll, I'll throw them out there and, okay. and we'll if see. If the answers what you are ours, are you saying they're supposed to be short? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, are, are we as much as you are, need. So what's your favorite type of cookie? If you had to pick one cookie that you could only eat the rest of your life? Well, you can't call toffee a cookie because it's more like a candy cookie. I'd have to say rugula. Okay. Buddy? Chocolate chip. Okay. Really? Classic. Do you lick the wooden spoon in the beaters when you're baking at home? I don't use a wooden spoon anymore. <laughs> okay. And How yes, about the beaters? I've always licked. <laughs> okay. In fact, it sometimes tells you you left something out. Yeah. Not enough sugar. Yeah, I, so it has your stamp of approval. 
Y- yes. Here's my swipe. Here's your swipe. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's silicone spoons I use nowadays. Okay. Yeah. What's your biggest baking fail? Or have you never failed at baking? <laughs> uh, well, something that failed that we had to fix or something just failed yeah. or you've never been able to recover? Oh, not necessarily never able to recover. Just to, is there is there something that you tried to bake once and it was just yes. a total yes. disaster? Yes. Yeah. When I first met Rose and we started sort of working together, I made Rose's chocolate oblivion many times over the decade, over about a decade. And she said, I'll give you the white chocolate version of this. But she hadn't made it yet. So I made it, of course, came out like soup. Because <laughs> it needs the cocoa solids, which and I had I made it again, and it came out like soup. That became one of the best frostings we ever had, the which is our white frosting. chocolate yeah. buttercream frosting. Not all failures result yeah. in which some new in discovery. The, which is in Rose's right. Heavenly Cakes, by the way. Okay, the, the one failure that stands out, because usually I can control everything, you know, so if it's not great, it's not exactly a failure, but this was total, was when I was making a chocolate wedding cake in a 12-inch pan, and I didn't realize you have to decrease the proportion of baking powder or leavening to the flour in a larger pan because it needs more support, and baking powder weakens it so it baked perfectly and then um all of a sudden this was in new york city we had that major what is it called when you lose all power blackout oh yeah mm-hmm. the all city blackout just as i was going to touch to see if it was springing back but so i went in blind you know not seeing anything and my finger just kept going and going and going <laughs> i thought where's the cake you know, it had fallen in the center because i'd used too much baking powder now my stepson came home and he was so happy because there's nothing better than a fallen chocolate cake yeah it makes it more fudgy yeah and fall, this is what i mean by texture a fallen yellow cake would taste nasty but a right. fallen chocolate one is okay. Right. Nonetheless, I retested before I made the wedding cake for the people. <laughs> sure. Is there a baking utensil or tool that you're really obsessed with right yes, now? Yes, you are. Yeah, the thermopen thermometer. Ooh. Yeah, those are great. To have an accurate thermometer yeah. is the godsend in baking. And I'd actually used to produce mercury thermometers that were accurate to a fraction of a degree. But then it became illegal in the kitchen. The USDA said mercury should not be around something that heats where it could break. And so, didn't somebody reprimand you? It wasn't the right color. Oh, this was the funniest thing. (laughs) Cook's Magazine, long time ago, before they had a real scientist on the program, (laughs) they compared my thermometer to one that's quote red mercury, easier to read. Trust me, if there was such a thing as red mercury, I would have used it. (laughs) I thought, wow, they think they've discovered a new element. Right, right. It's it's like it was was only iodine, and iodine is not repeatable. In other words, you bring it up to 92, and then it doesn't go back up, even if it's 92, because this is very slow and very inaccurate. But nowadays, that doesn't happen. People are very educated, which is nice. So I waited a long time until somebody came up with the instant read that I could really trust. For sure, her second most popular thing to use because while we're testing sometimes it's kind of like she's a doctor and i'm the nurse assistant in the operating <laughs> Give me room. what i want not what in i the ask for room and uh you know, red thin spatula she's oh, a little, yes. little thin spatula that's uh oh probably 10 inches long but the you know the blade's only about four inches long it's the perfect inch one. wide and it's like Fortunately, we have five. Oh, that's we because haven't gone through five yet. This is recipe, part of the holy trinity that. of Rose's spatulas <laughs> that is now being produced by American Products Group. And I keep saying, get it on Amazon. I want to write about it. All right. Last question. Have you ever used a box cake in a pinch? Not in a pinch, but that was my first cake. I grew yeah. up without cake. I mean, I grew up with um, without cakes, period. I didn't have sweets. My mother was a dentist. Right, that's right. So uh, when I dis- discovered my first box cake, I thought, this has a wonderful texture. Yeah. But then I had my first scratch cake when I was 17. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could have a cake that had the texture of a box cake 
and the flavor of a homemade scratch cake. And right. that was the basis of the Cake Bible. And I was actually the first person ever to be hired by Procter & Gamble to consult on their on their Duncan Hines chocolate cake mix okay. from the outside because yeah. they'd always only had people who worked for the company, but they felt they could do anything technologically, but they no longer had the imagination from the people in the outside world yeah. of what to do. So it was a great full circle of coming around to bring all that I'd learned to their mix to right. see if I could improve it. But you see, the, the engineers in Box Cakes, they win patents for emulsifiers. And it's that that you're tasting in it. An emulsifier gives you what they call tolerance. So you could throw anything in there and it would still work, unlike a scratch cake. But you always have that telltale, mm, you know, that's not great. Right. There's an interesting sociology with box cakes, too, because originally some of the cake mixes worked with just water and you could just add water and it there was mm -hmm. some science behind, right? People wanted to feel like they were actually doing something in the That's kitchen. That's what they told so me, So the eggs and the oil, right? Yeah. There's some truth to that then, maybe? That's what they told I met okay. the father of the cake mix, Palumbo. Uh -huh. At first, he didn't like me because he thought I was being hired to take his place. <laughs> <laughs> but the best thing that happened to Procter and Gamble, and this is really exciting, was I asked to speak to the person who knew most about technology of chocolate, and it was no, an old man who was a scientist, and nobody ever talked to him. So he gave me all of his secrets, yeah. and I said, "How can you make chocolate taste the most chocolatey?" And he said, "Use cocoa and hydrate it with boiling water, because chocolate is like flour; they're grains, and you have to break the cell to release the flavors inside." So he said. When you're going to cook with it, cocoa is better, and you can use less of it. So the benefit is less cocoa means a lighter cake, but it also means less expensive, and it also means fuller flavor. So I thought that was invaluable. Wow. All right. Well, Rose, Woody, thank you so much for joining us. This was fun. Thank you for inviting me. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from this episode on our website, saltandspine.com. There you'll find this recipe from Rose's Baking Basics, her triple lemon velvet bunt cake. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Our program today was produced by Allison Sullivan and myself. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again tomorrow with more stories behind the baking books you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Greetings Adventurers is an award-winning comedy real play D&D podcast that has been running for a decade with 427 episodes in our first campaign. I didn't have back problems or kids when we started. My favorite thing about the show is that it's a group of friends playing D&D who don't take anything too seriously. Right, like would a normal group use a sphere of annihilation as a toilet? We threw so much mayonnaise in there. We just started a new campaign, so it's a great time to jump in. Or you can listen to our first level 1 all the way to level 20 adventure and have hundreds of hours of entertainment. New episodes every Monday, so listen to Greetings Adventurers on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com <laughs>